This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the debate last night, we have to talk about what happened before the debate. I don't know if you were able to see this. I watched this press conference from this unlikely person, Tony Bobolinsky, who came forward to make this bombshell statement. He confirms that the emails on the Biden laptop are authentic. But as Jonathan Turley puts it, the reference to giving a cut to the big guy, according to Bobolinsky, was indeed a reference to Joe Biden. More emails are coming out showing that Hunter Biden was referring to his family as his asset in these dealings. As he mentions, the emails that have attracted the most attention refer to an actual meeting of Joe Biden with these foreign figures and one referring to a proposed equity split of 20 for H and then 10 held by H for the big guy. That's another reference to his father, Joe Biden. Bobolinsky confirms that H was Hunter and his father was routinely called the big guy in these discussions. It's not looking any better for Joe Biden and his, well, let's just say his family, his very wealthy family. And it's just going to get more and more awkward. So the big question going into last night's debate was, will this even come up? Because they were supposed to talk about families and race and climate change. Drives me a little nuts because you've already covered this stuff ad nauseum in the first debate. Why do we need another debate on the same stuff? They did 22 minutes or so on COVID. Have we not covered this territory? So I'm going to skip over the COVID stuff, but I have a lot of audio for you to hear if you weren't able to watch the debate between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's go to this. Biden was talking about the fact that President Trump is unwilling to take on Putin. And that was when President Trump took the opportunity. Cut one. But you were getting a lot of money from Russia. They were paying you a lot of money, and they probably still are. But now, with what came out today, it's even worse. All of the emails, the emails, the horrible emails of the kind of money that you were raking in, you and your family. And Joe, you were vice president when some of this was happening, and it should have never happened. And I think you owe an explanation to the American people. Why is it? Somebody just had a news conference a little while ago who was essentially supposed to work with you and your family. But what he said was damning. And Regardless of me, I think you have to clean it up and talk to the American people. Maybe you can do it right now. Vice President Biden, you may respond. And then I do want to follow up on the election security. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. We learned that this president paid 50 times the tax in China, has a secret bank account with China, does business in China, and in fact is talking about me taking money. I have not taken a single penny from any country whatsoever, ever. 
Okay, that may come back to bite you. What he was referencing there about the bank account in China was the fact that Trump, and he explained this, but I'll just summarize, the Trump organization had a bank account in China because they were doing business over there, but it was between 2013 and 2015. And then before Trump ever ran for president, he closed the bank account. So he kind of shot that right down. But Trump then went on about the China scandal. Here's cut two. I don't make money from China. You do. I don't make money from Ukraine. You do. I don't make money from Russia. You made three and a half million dollars, Joe. And your son gave you. They even have a statement that we have to give 10 percent to the big man. You're the big man, I think. I don't know. Maybe you're not. But you're the big man, I think. Your son said we have to give 10 percent to the big man. Joe, what's that all about? It's terrible. Well, it, it is terrible. Big guy, but close enough. Big big man, big guy, what have you. That's that's exactly right. Then Trump brings up his impeachment. Cut three. I was put through a phony witch hunt for three years. It started before I even got elected. They spied on my campaign. No president should ever have to go through what I went through. Let me just say this. Mueller... And 18 angry Democrats and FBI agents all over the place spent $48 million. They went through everything I had, including my tax returns, and they found absolutely no collusion and nothing wrong. $48 million. I guarantee you, if I spent $1 million on you, Joe, I could find plenty wrong. Because right. the kind of things that you've done and the kind of monies that your family has taken, I mean, your brother made money in Iraq. Millions of dollars. Your other brother made a fortune. And it's all through you, Joe. And they say you get some of it. And you do live very well. You have houses all over the place. You live very well. Wow. That was a bit of a zinger. I'm glad he got it out, though, because the mainstream media is doing an excellent job of ignoring the story. CNN, as of late yesterday afternoon, early evening, had not said one word about the press conference from the guy who was working with the Bidens between the Bidens and the Chinese company who gave this Tony Bobolinsky, nothing, nothing. They're just ignoring it. It's going to go away if you ignore it. It's not going to go away, especially when you had, well, the last debate drew about 70 million viewers. I don't know how many yet watched last night, but that's an awful lot of people for him to be able to reach with that information. And isn't it disgusting that the media won't even report stories? that are that huge because they're that partisan. Now, I was very impressed, to tell you the truth, that this moderator, Kristen Walker, who was not perfect, she was a little bit more on Biden's side than Trump's, she actually brought up Hunter Biden herself. Listen to cut four. All right, gentlemen, let me just ask oh, some good. questions about all of this broadly. Vice President Biden, there have been questions about the work your son has done in China and for a Ukrainian energy company when you were vice president. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical? Nothing was unethical. Here's what the deal. With regard to Ukraine, we had this whole question about whether or not, because he was on the board, I later learned of a Burisma, a company, that somehow I had done something wrong. Yet every single solitary person when he was going through his impeachment, testifying under oath who worked for him, said, I did my job impeccably. I carried out U.S. policy. Not one single solitary thing was out of line. Not a single thing, number one. Number two, 
The guy who got in trouble in Ukraine was this guy trying to bribe the Ukrainian government to say something negative about me, which they would not do and did not do because it never, ever, ever happened. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. I have not had, a, the only guy made money from China is this guy. He's the only one. Nobody else has made money from China. Never President Trump, deal with let me, let me ask way, my question to you. And could I just one, one thing? Very quickly. His son didn't have a job for a long time, was sadly no longer in the military service. I won't get into that. And he didn't have a job. As soon as he became vice president, Burisma, not the best, look, not the best reputation in the world, I hear they paid him 183000 a month. Listen to this. 183, and they gave him a $3 million upfront payment. All right. And he had no I, energy I'm going to let the vice president That's respond to that quickly, and then dishonest. I need to get to a question to you. Very No quickly, basis for that. Everybody investigated that. No one said anything he did was wrong in Ukraine. Uh, there's so many lies there. I don't even know where to begin to start refuting it all. But referencing Trump and the Ukrainian phone call, there was no quid pro quo. Absolutely none. He was not removed from office during that impeachment hoax. We've subsequently learned from the Brennan notes that Hillary even was the one who came up with this whole idea of going after Trump under a Russian collusion excuse. Obama was informed about it. We know all that. We also know that Joe Biden is on record and you can watch the video on YouTube saying that he was happy that he got the Ukrainian prosecutor fired who was looking into Burisma. So we know he did it. And not only that, George Kent, the deputy assistant secretary of state, actually did testify that he'd expressed his concern to the vice president's office when Joe Biden was the vice president about Hunter Biden and a possible conflict of interest, having Hunter Biden on the Burisma board when he had no experience at the same time that Joe Biden was promoting U.S. policy objectives in Ukraine. He brought it up and he was asked, did you get anywhere? No, I never heard back from the VP's office. Biden is not telling the truth. He did it over and over and over and over. And I guess that's just what they told him to do. You got too much to explain. Just lie. And he lied. He really lied. And I don't know. I think this is just going to fuel the fire as more comes out about his son's laptop emails. We're going to pause for a break. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Did you know that Bible-less believers around the world are praying to receive their very own copy of God's Word? Through the Ministry of Bible League International, you can send those Bibles today. Hear from Meng in Vietnam. If they don't have Bible, how they can find the truth? Because the Bible like a map to bring them to find the truth. And many people, they are really uh, hungry for the Word of God and then they need the Bible. Nepo is a pastor in Ghana praying for Bibles for former Muslim radicals now following Christ. Anna was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Albania, but her godly witness changed his heart and now he needs a Bible. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by terrorists in Mexico, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with others. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word? $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you missed the debate last night, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Not nearly as hostile as it was with Chris Wallace. Very, very good. And I think President Trump really did a great job. Joe Biden, not so much. He was looking at his watch. He was staring down. He was saying some strange things. But I want to get through more of these cuts so you can hear a little bit what went on. Now, Trump, I had mentioned earlier, talked about that bank account he had in China and closed down before he actually ran for president. Joe Biden was trying to nail him to the wall over that. But here was Kristen Welker talking about it. This is cut five. Okay, President Trump, this is for you. Since you took office, you've never divested from your business. You've personally promoted your properties abroad. A report this week, which was referenced, does indicate that your company has a bank account in China. So how can voters know that you don't have any foreign conflicts of interest? I have many bank accounts, and they're all listed, and they're all over the place. I mean, I was a businessman doing business. The bank account you're referring to, which is everybody knows about it, it's listed. The bank account was in 2013. That's what it was. It was opened and it was closed in 2015, I believe. And then I decided because I was going to do, I was thinking about doing a deal in China like millions of other people. I was thinking about it and I decided I'm not going to do it. Didn't like it. I decided not to do it. Had an account open and I closed it. Okay. Excuse me. And then unlike him where he's vice president and he does business, I then decided to run for president after that. That was before. So I closed it before I even ran for president, let alone became president. Big difference. He is the vice president of the United States and his son, his brother, and his other brother are getting rich. They're like a vacuum cleaner. They're sucking up money. Okay, President Trump, thank you. We do need to move on. Not true. We are not like a vacuum cleaner. More like a Swiffer. No, I mean, that was pretty funny. Another subject that came up was North Korea, Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. And there was some discussion about the Biden, Obama-Biden administration's relationship with North Korea. Listen to Cut 6. Vice President Biden, you've said you wouldn't meet with Kim Jong-un without preconditions. Are there any conditions under which you would meet with him? On the condition that he would agree that he would be drawing down his nuclear capacity to get that the Korean Peninsula should be nuclear free zone. All right, let's move on to American families. Kristen, they tried Very to quickly, meet with 10 him. Seconds, President. They tried to meet with him. He I wouldn't didn't. do it. He didn't like Obama. He didn't like him. He wouldn't do it. Okay, I got to give him a chance to respond to that before we move on. He wouldn't do it. And no that's way. okay. You know what? North Korea, we're not in a war. 
We have a good relationship. You know, people don't understand. Having a good relationship Trump, with leaders of on, other countries is a, a good country. thing. We have a lot of questions to get yes. to. Not Your response. Saying we had a good relationship with Hitler before he, in fact, invaded Europe, the rest of Europe. Come on. The reason he would not meet with President Obama is because President Obama said, we're going to talk about denuclearization. We're not going to legitimize you. And we're going to continue to put stronger and stronger sanctions on you. That's why he wouldn't meet with us. I'm sorry. We had a good relationship with Hitler before he invaded Europe. No, we didn't. What is he talking about? Is this just Godwin's law run amok that the longer you have a conversation, the more likely it is that somebody will reference Hitler? Well, there was that moment. Now, another subject that came up was related to immigration and the border. How will you reunite these 500 kids who are separated from their parents at the border and they can't find the parents? What will you do about it? That was the question on the table. Here's President Trump. Cut seven. Children are brought here by coyotes and lots of bad people, cartels, and they're brought here and they used to use them to get into our country. We now have as strong a border as we've ever had. We're over 400 miles of brand new wall. You see the numbers and we let people in, but they have to come in legally and they come in through. But America. how will you reunite these just tell kids you, with their families, let me just tell you, Mr. President? They built cages. You know, they used to say, I built the cages. And then they had a picture in a certain newspaper and it was a picture of these horrible cages. And they said, look at these cages. President Trump built them. And then it was determined they were built in 2014. That was him. Do you they have a plan cages. to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working families? on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. Vice President Biden, let me bring you into this conversation. Quick response and then another question to you. These 500 plus kids came with parents. They separated them at the border to make it a disincentive to come to begin with. They real tough. We're really strong. And guess what? They cannot. It's not coyotes didn't bring them over. Their parents were with them. They got separated from their parents. And it makes us a laughing stock and violates every notion of who we are as a nation. Let me ask you a follow-up question. They did it. We changed the policy. Your response they to did that? It. We, we changed. did not. They built the cages. The they, who, who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what who we're built talking the cages, about. Joe? Let's talk about what we're talking about. Yeah, who built the cages, Joe? He already got it in there. Who built the cages? The cages were built by the Obama administration. They don't want to admit that. They want it to all be Trump's fault. What about the issue of prison reform and racism and what both of these candidates would do for the black community? This was kind of an interesting exchange. Trump criticized Biden and and this was how it went. This is cut eight. He's been in government 47 years. He never did a thing except in 1994 when he did such harm to the black community and they were called and he called them super predators and he said that he said it super predators and they have never lived that down 1994 your crime bill the super predators nobody has done more for the black community than donald trump and if you look with the exception of abraham lincoln possible exception but the exception of abraham lincoln nobody has done what i've done Criminal justice reform, Obama and Joe didn't do it. I don't even think they tried because they had no chance at doing it. 
They might have wanted to do it, but if you had to see the arms I had to twist to get that done, it was not a pretty picture. And everybody knows it, including some very liberal people that cried in my office. They cried in the Oval Office. Two weeks later, they're out saying, gee, we have to defeat him. Very interesting. Trump also said he is not racist. I mean, this is something that the left has tried to pin on him for quite a while now. He doubled down on that. This is cut nine. I am the least racist person in this room. Well, what do you say to Americans who are concerned by that rhetoric? I don't know. The, I mean, I don't videos. know what to say. I got criminal justice reform done and prison reform and opportunity zones. I took care of black colleges and universities. I don't know what to say. They can say anything. I mean, they can say anything. It's a very, it makes me sad because I am, I, I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark. But I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. Okay, Vice President Biden, let me ask you very quickly, and then I have a follow-up question for you. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. Every single one. Started off his campaign coming down the escalator saying he's going to get rid of those Mexican rapists. He's banned Muslims because they're Muslims. He has moved around and made everything worse across the board. He says to the, about the poor boys, last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Come on. This guy has a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. President Trump, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to respond, and then I have a follow-up. No, I, he made a reference to Abraham Lincoln. Where did that come in? I mean, you said you're Abraham that, Lincoln. No, no, where did that? No, no. You said, I said not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody right. done what I've done for the black community. And I'm saying, I didn't say I'm Abraham Lincoln. I said not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody done what I've done for the black community. Now, you have done nothing other than the crime bill, which put... Oh, God. That tens of thousands of black men, mostly in jail. Wow, that was rough. Why did you call President Trump Abraham Lincoln? That doesn't even make sense. Are you trying to imply that Abraham Lincoln, who emancipated the slaves, was a gigantic racist? And also those claims that he made about Trump wanting to get rid of Mexican rapists and somehow that was racist and then talking about banning Muslims because they're Muslims. No, he didn't. He was banning people coming in from Muslim uh, countries that were very much linked to terrorism. It had nothing to do with people's religion, except if that religion was radicalized and there was a big terrorist threat to the United States. He was protecting Americans by doing that. And he left all kinds of majority Muslim nations, uh, continued to give them free access to the United States. Most of all, I think this was the moment that will haunt Joe Biden. Maybe the stuff with the China, the scandal with Hunter. I'm hoping that'll be bigger. But this one was huge. This is cut 10. Would he close it down falls. the oil industry? It falls. Would you close it down the falls. oil industry? By the way, I have a transition from the oil industry. Yes. Oh, I will that's transition. a big It is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh. I see. Here's the deal. But That's you can't a big statement. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry. I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. 
He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas, excuse me, to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that, Texas? Will you okay. remember that, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? Vice President Biden. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what he did. And I don't know if that was okay with his campaign for him to admit, I'm going to decimate the energy industry. I'm going to decimate the oil industry and take with it thousands of jobs. But don't worry, wind and solar are going to be great. Yeah, we remember Solyndra. We remember what Obama did and what you did when you were vice president, when you were trying to make green jobs a thing. And we remember what a boondoggle that was. Big mistake. Although, you know, maybe it was the one true honest moment that he had all night. You could also look at it that way. But I thought it was quite telling. Lots to come. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. We'll be right back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. On January 22nd, 2019, as you know, the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered the spire of the One World Trade Center building to be lit up in pink. Why? To celebrate the newly passed radical abortion law in that state, which, among other insane provisions, now allows some abortions up until the moment of a baby's birth. Whatever happened to pro-abortion advocates assuring us that they just wanted abortion to be safe, legal, and rare? It seems like those days are gone, and now we're left with the staggering reality that we have lost more than 60 million human beings to abortion in America. But the issue is not gone. In fact, my next guest says abortion is the great unexamined issue of our time. So we're going to talk about it today with Danielle D'Souza Gill, who is author of the new book, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. Danielle, great to have you with us. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. You are welcome. Why would you say abortion is an unexamined issue? That is an interesting claim, I guess, maybe as a pro-lifer. I think, wow, we talk about abortion all the time, but a lot of people don't, I guess. Well, I think it's a very uh, divided issue, and the left oftentimes doesn't actually want to go into the facts because they know that when people find out a lot of the information on this issue, they actually do become pro-life. So I think it's unexamined for many people who are undecided on this issue because oftentimes women, for example, are not even shown their ultrasound before they go in for an abortion. Um, Many people in the abortion industry, including Planned Parenthood, really operate uh, based on kind of pulling the wool over women's eyes on this one and really a lot of deception. So I think that's why it's important that we get the truth out there and kind of engage in a discussion of this issue. Oh, absolutely. And you do a great job of it in your book. There are a lot of these phrases that have been popularized among women who have not examined the issue very closely. 
And of course, one of the myths that you talk about is, and I've heard this for years, it's just a cluster of cells. It's not really a person. Do you think that one is kind of on the way out now with the advent of things like 3D and 4D ultrasounds, where it's very hard to make the argument that it's not a human being in that womb? Exactly. I think we all know from an ultrasound, you know, whenever a friend I see on social media posts a photo of her ultrasound, everyone, you know, who comments on it, likes the photo, says congratulations. They know exactly what's going on in that image. So only when we're in the abortion debate does the other side kind of like to create a lot of confusion around it and act as though we have no idea what's happening. But I think that's why the left has kind of shifted to this other argument, which is that it's a human, but it's not a person in the sense of the rest of us. So they kind of create this idea of personhood as if by being human, that doesn't mean you deserve to be a person. Right. Well, they keep shifting their arguments every time the pro-life movement makes some kind of gains. And we've made lots of gains over the last 40 plus years uh, in terms of swaying people and bringing people over to the side of the sanctity of human life. What would you say is one of their biggest myths going right now? They've had a lot through the years, but what would you say is one of the main convincing, I would say arguments, but propaganda statements that a lot of women buy into? Well, I think their most probably evil is the idea that abortion empowers women. Um, I know that recently Stevie Nicks talked about this and talked about how, you know, she wouldn't be the person she was today or Fleetwood Mac wouldn't be where it was today if it weren't for her having an abortion. Um, I know Michelle Williams also talked about this at the Golden Globe Awards, you know, holding her award, saying she couldn't have never gotten that were it it not for the, quote, right to choose abortion. And so I think just this mass messaging and kind of Planned Parenthood, you know, using pink as like, and just all this empowerment messaging as if to young women, hey, you know, you have to do this in order to be successful or, you know, be an important person. And I think that that is probably the biggest myth that I wanted to debunk And that's why I wanted to make my book, you know, pink and kind of show that um, you actually don't need an abortion to be empowered. And abortion actually leads to a lot of other problems in life that they often don't talk about. Oh, yeah. You you know, you mentioned some of those celebrities and we've had more and more of these celebrities trotted out to shout their abortions. I mean, I think people like uh, Busy Phillips was another one who came out and talked about the glories of her abortion. This is a really strange way to approach the issue, though, Danielle, because empowering yourself by killing your child. I mean, women are created with this natural maternal instinct to protect their babies. That's a far cry from a young girl who's confused about what abortion really is being lured into an abortion clinic by a boyfriend and she doesn't really know what's going on. And then afterwards, she regrets it. Now we're to the point of, you know, power fist in the air. I'm going to be empowered by killing my baby. How much more evil is that, do you think, than the the former arguments about, eh, it's just a cluster of cells? I think it's very twisted. And I think it comes from kind of this idea that, you know, the only way they can kind of get women to do this is through this messaging of denial, of saying, you know, if we acknowledge that this is something bad, if we acknowledge this is something that's regrettable, then they know that that's kind of a slippery slope down to someone realizing, wait, well, then maybe I shouldn't do this at all. But I think that's how, you know, they kind of started it in, you know, in 1973. And then in the 80s, they would say, you know, safe, legal and rare. And this is kind of something in a special situation. But of course, you know, the floodgates have been opened. And so now we're talking about nine month abortions federal funding for abortion. We're talking about them saying how it's a positive good, how it's empowering. Mm. And so I think that that whole message is really to kind of pull you out of reality and kind of put you into this idea that, um, you know, we're not actually talking about facts anymore. They're kind of trying to 
tap into these feelings of, you know, feeling good about yourself. And I think that um, that's because they do know how bad it makes people feel. Yeah. How much of this would you say is tied to the left being absolutely in political bed with Planned Parenthood? Planned Parenthood, as we know, was very much exposed by the David Daleiden pro-life undercover videos showing the baby body parts trafficking. They are, you know, losing funding. They are losing abortionists uh, right and left. All these abortion clinics that have closed in the last decade, it's been a huge number. You know, how much of this really is desperation? We got to do something. Maybe if we get celebrities to tell women that this empowers them, maybe that'll bring our numbers up. I mean, it's a sick way of thinking, but how much of it really is the abortion industry itself becoming desperate at a time when they're losing, you know, women coming in for surgical abortions and the pro-life movement is growing? Right. I think it's all really connected. A lot of these celebrities, you know, ardently support the left. They'll, they'll, they will support Joe Biden. They supported Hillary Clinton. They supported Obama. So they kind of continuously get recycled on kind of the celebrity Democrat circuit. But then at the same time, Planned Parenthood is donating millions of dollars, I think um, over 40 million to uh, Joe Biden. So then at the same time, if these celebrities also help Planned Parenthood raise money, then they can then funnel that into the Democratic campaign. And then whenever they get in office, they then give more federal funding to Planned Parenthood. So it's kind of this whole circle of, you know, making money and basically using um, each one of these as kind of a tag team. So I think that, you know, we should not be under the illusion that kind of these people pop out of nowhere. They're really part of this larger goal, which is to increase abortions every year, increase the money that they're getting, and also um, make sure that they're kind of getting this message out to as many people as possible. And of course, these celebrities have huge megaphones, but I think that's why it's so good that we are starting to realize that, wait, actually, maybe we shouldn't base our views or our ideology off of a given celebrity. Maybe we should dive into the issue itself and the facts on this issue, as opposed to the talking points they're putting out. There's an intelligent thought. I agree with you. Another thing that they (laughs) like to yell about is my body, my choice, which, you know, having carried four children of my own, I can say from the moment you become pregnant, you recognize very clearly that that's a different person than you. Uh, Chromosomically, if you want to say it that way, you know, you have double the chromosomes when you have a child in your womb. My body, my choice. What do you make of that myth? I think that's the most popular one. That's the slogan they absolutely love using. And I think it's because the idea of choice sounds good. We all hear the word choice and go, oh, yeah, great. You know, I like to make choices about things, but they're not clear on what that choice is. And they're, of course, only talking about one specific choice. And that is the choice to kill. It's the choice to abort. If you say, I'm making a choice about something else, they don't care about that. They only care about this one particular choice. And I think that when it comes to choice... You know, we have so much freedom, but our choices have to stop when they reach another human being. When we reach another human who has its own heartbeat and its own body, we're not talking about our own body. We're talking about someone else's body and someone else's life that we're trying to end. Exactly. Well, and what they also like to stress is that it's all about the woman and the woman's choice. Well, every baby has a father, too. I want to get into that and more when we return with Danielle D'Souza-Gill. Her book is called The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. We'll be right back on Janet Muffer today.
Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds Sounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. There sure are a lot of myths out there surrounding abortion. And when you are pro-life, you know those myths very, very well. But there's still millions of people in this country who don't really examine the issue of abortion from a medical or constitutional or certainly moral perspective. Great book out called The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America, which we're discussing with its author, Danielle D'Souza-Gill. Danielle, what about this issue? We were talking about one of the myths being my body, my choice, which you hear all the time. And it's always been the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman. Well, every baby has a father. What about the issue of men don't get a say over abortion? I think that's one of the most outrageous and easily refuted remarks that anybody could ever make. But there are still people who fall for that. How do you discuss that, I would say, with somebody who thinks it's only the woman's decision to make? Absolutely. Yes. I have a chapter on this. I call it, it takes two to tango because you can never have a child that doesn't have you know, two parents in the sense that it does take a mother and a father to create a child. And I think what's so sad about this is the fact that this child shares DNA of its father, yet we're acting like this child had absolutely nothing to do with him, as if it's, you know, a body part of the woman and so on. But if we really look at, you know, kind of what the left says, what they often say is, we want men to be vulnerable, we want them to share their feelings with us and all of this. But When we talk to men about what actually breaks their hearts the most, it's losing a child. And oftentimes they're completely left out of the discussion and left out of this whole situation. And I think that it really leads to this sense of kind of PTSD for them and feeling like, wow, I was totally helpless in this situation. And um, I think that part of the goal actually of the left is to remove men from this um, because they also want to remove fathers from the family and basically say to women that, 
you don't really need a man. You just need the government or you just need the abortionist at Planned Parenthood. Why don't you talk to that person and that person will help you figure this out. Don't consult your parents. Don't consult this man. Don't consult, you know, a pastor or anyone else. Just talk to the Planned Parenthood worker. And I think that's what they really rely on because they know that if women talk to these other people in their support system, then they're very unlikely to get the abortion. You are hitting on a really important point because we've seen the attacks on the natural family by the left. It's been ramped up with the LGBT movement. But really, when you go back to the original feminist movement, there's a lot of man hatred. And the feminist movement, of course, for them, an an abortion is almost like a sacrament. People have said this for years, but it's really true. How much of this do you think, for the activists at least, does come down to the issue of we want to be able to have a say over whether or not children come into the world and men shouldn't have much, if anything, to say about it? Well, I think that it really goes back to this idea that for these radical, you know, leftist feminists who have hijacked that movement from the original feminists, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were pro-life, but, you know, this radical 1960s feminism onward, I think they kind of have this idea of, you know, basically feminism is being a man, So they say, okay, well, men don't have to have babies, so therefore we shouldn't either. Well, if men don't have to do this, then we shouldn't either. You know, they even use all of this um, language about, you know, men have periods and just all these things (laughs) are obviously not factual. But I think that they do it in order to um, not only hate men, but almost a self-loathing of hating themselves Mm. for being feminine and being a woman. And of course, if that's your standard of being a successful woman is literally being a man, well, that's basically impossible because of biological differences. So I think when they see something like pregnancy, they think, oh, wow, this is our chance to control. This is our chance to hurt him. This is our chance to hurt the child. And they use this very violent rhetoric that I think is very poisonous because it harms so many people beyond just her. Oh, yeah, it's so twisted. And here's something else that you bring up during the course of the book. You talk about this excuse of rape, incest, the life of the mother. We always hear about those excuses. Well, you know, abortion is wrong, maybe, and we shouldn't want to have a lot of abortions. We don't want to have millions and millions and millions of abortions. But we don't have the right to say to a woman who's been raped or is the victim of incest or might die because of the abortion to have to suffer with a child. I mean, that's even the language of Obama talking about his teenage daughter at one point. I wouldn't want her to suffer the consequences of having a child if she got pregnant. What about these exceptions that are brought up? Because it seems to me, as somebody told me years ago, a woman I met who had a baby who was conceived by rape, her excuse to me is she said, why should my child pay for her father's crime. And I thought that nobody has ever said it better than that. What do you say to women about the issue of rape, incest, or the life of the mother argument? I think that's exactly right. I think that the irony when we look at a situation like rape is actually many on the left argue for lighter sentences for murderers and rapists. And in reality, the one who deserves the death penalty is the rapist, not the child. Um, You know, none of us condone rape in any way. And I think that what we have to do is be harsher on them to make sure that we stop it from occurring in the first place. But we have to remember that this child had absolutely nothing to do with it. And we can't blame, you know, someone for, for, you know, who their parents were in that sense. But I think that as far as the woman not having to be reminded of this, I would say that, you know, closed adoptions are not talked about enough because that is completely anonymous. And so you won't have that 
uh, reminder in the child itself. Now, I can't, of course, undo the horrible you know, thing that happened in terms of the rape itself, but in terms of the child and kind of removing that from your life, I think that's a great option because the family who adopts that child will love that child and not see it in that light and not see it in terms of um, how that woman might see it. But, um, of course, I've also known, you know, many stories where uh, the woman does love that child as well. But I think that the solution of, you know, just killing the child, it doesn't actually undo what happened and it doesn't actually solve the situation at large. I think to solve the situation, we have to make sure we take rapists off the streets so it doesn't happen in the first place. Absolutely. Yep. That's the way it is. You know, and how much of this goes back to something that I don't think is discussed as much as it ought to be going back to the sexual revolution, the, you know, when, when it became possible for women to take the birth control pill and not have to necessarily have the consequences of getting pregnant if they wanted to be sexually promiscuous. It's just accepted now. That's just the way we are. Women can be just as sexually promiscuous as men, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, to what extent do we need to go back to the basic moral argument that perhaps it isn't such a good thing for women to be sexually promiscuous for a whole host of reasons, one of which would be the scourge of abortion for the 60 plus million children who have died? Yeah, I think the sexual revolution is really at the heart of it. And that's why this is the hill that many on the left are willing to die on. They don't actually care about, you know, taxes and the illegal immigrant and all these other things. That's not their issue. Their issue is abortion. And that's why, you know, they always show up to the Supreme Court. They always go back to this issue because they know that without it, they couldn't really justify their lifestyle. And I think that actually it's not just about the woman's side of the sexual promiscuity, but abortion actually allows for men to do this as well, because basically for men, they can look at it, or at least bad men, they can look at it as, hmm, you know, I'll just kind of have sex with whoever I want. And then if a woman gets pregnant, I'll just give her 500 bucks and she can go get an abortion. But what does that leave the woman with? That leaves her, you know, on a Saturday going to an abortion clinic, having to get a very painful surgery or have a fleshing out experience at home on her toilet, it's not nice. It's not empowering for women. And they're the ones who often have to then go through this horrible procedure and then deal with the aftermath of that. So I think this idea that it somehow frees women, empowers women, it's completely wrong. And abortion actually really helps the patriarchy and many, you know, sexually promiscuous men to use women um, kind of just as part of their lifestyle. Yeah, which needs to be discussed. I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but you have some good ideas on having sort of a progressive approach to ending abortion, not progressive in the leftist progressive sense, but the progress. You talk about these steps really that could be taken, limiting the reach of Roe, overturning Roe, having a federal ban on abortion. Uh, basically, do you think this would be something that would be feasible for us to to undertake, to try to do this instead? I think so. I think that's how most things have changed over time. That's how we overcame segregation, for example. Um, They had to start by limiting it, and then they had to start to, you know, say we're going to put a federal ban on this. But I think that with the overturning of Roe, it's let's say the first step. Um, We could see that, you know, certain states like New York and California will still remain to have very radical abortion laws. But other states will be able to pass heartbeat bills and they'll be able to limit abortion, which Roe v. Wade was preventing them from doing. So I think over time, we'll continue to change people's hearts and minds on the issue where eventually we would be able to put in something like a federal ban. I think right now, of course, we wouldn't have the ability to do that yet. But I think by the time we got there, we will have, you know, changed the culture dramatically. Um, But right now we're really up against a big hill as long as we have something like Roe v. Wade, which completely prevents states 
from limiting abortion really at all. You're totally right about that. Oh, such good stuff. The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America, the book by Danielle D'Souza Gill. Danielle, great book, and it was so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again, Janet. This was fun. For me, too. Thank you, and God bless, Danielle. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining us here on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next time right here. God bless you.